Hello, and welcome to the One Thing Podcast brought to you by the Horton Group. We're at the Horton Group, we specialize in insurance, employee benefits, and risk advisory. And I'm your host, Jason Helfer. Does anyone have this type of person in your life? The person that after every interaction you have with them leaves you craving more. A person that has developed such an intense expertise in an area, they are the unquestioned leader in their field. Well, that pretty much sums up our next guest. So anyone in the IDD field in Illinois will certainly recognize our next guest, and I am assuming they feel the same way about her as I do. So without further ado, Kathy Carmody, CEO, Institute on Public Policy for People with Disabilities. How you doing, Kathy? Hey, Jason. Great. Glad to be with you. Thank you. Well, thanks for joining us. We certainly appreciate it. All right, so Kathy, the Institute, what do you want people to know about it and your role within it as we move forward with the conversation today? Sure. Well, the Institute is a statewide association of organizations that provide direct services to people with intellectual and developmental disabilities across Illinois. Um, we have been around for 25 plus years. Um, I've been in my role with the Institute, uh, really just coming up on a eight year anniversary, March 1st, uh, will be eight years. Um, the Institute um, really used to have a much smaller footprint, I would say, um, in the IDD landscape. And um, I'm really happy to say that um, in the last eight years, our membership has um, almost tripled. So we are uh, near 55 uh, statewide organizations um, from really across the state, central mm -hmm. Illinois, northern Illinois, Chicago Metro, and uh, down in what, what is the southern part of the state. Um, we are the largest state association in Illinois that's devoted exclusively to people with intellectual and developmental disabilities and the community agencies that support them. Um, a really you know, robust group of CEOs comprise our institute board. Every, every organization is on our board. And uh, I think people feel it really gives them kind of a tether to um, what's okay. happening in the IDD um, space across Illinois and really nationally as well. We've got um, some good connections at the federal level that really keep people abreast of um, trends and um, topics that are impacting them and their service delivery. That's a, that's a good segue. And so thanks for the update on that. And one, one of the things I really enjoy whenever we get together is your view on what's happening outside of Illinois. And, and I am the first one to say, yes, it's wildly important for every nonprofit leader in Illinois to know what's going on where? In Illinois, right? You know, the, the things that are changing in Illinois, they're gonna impact the people in the communities they serve. But I also believe as a leader in any business, it's our responsibility to look outside our own four walls and see what's going on elsewhere. And so maybe our neighboring states or even on the, uh, from coast to coast. And so, you know, what are you seeing, Kathy? You know, what do you think that people that are listening to this podcast that are EDs or CEOs or presidents of agencies in Illinois need to know what's going on outside of our four walls? Well, you know, what I will say, Jason, as a, as a kind of to level set is, you know, the past several years that we have all experienced have been unprecedented. And I think what happened during that period is organization has to be so inwardly focused on just daily operations, really survival mode, and I mean that literally, mm -hmm. people healthy and alive, um, that we, we, we lost some ground in terms of probably some um, forward momentum that um, maybe had been building within organizations. And what I say is I, I, I really believe we've reached a point 
where while we, we are still really challenged um, with day-to-day operations, and I get that, I, in my background, uh, you know, ran uh, agency operations at a large provider organization, so I, I understand that. But kind of the, the, the expression I use is I, I really believe that leaders in organizations have to have this mentality of getting their periscopes up above sea level, mm-hmm. looking out into the future and the horizon, and, you know, what, what I say is um, any organization that is still doing business five years from now the way they are today won't be doing business. And, you know, by design or default, our industry is changing. And we can either be a part of shaping that and preparing for it and understanding it, mm-hmm. or we can be caught off guard and find out that suddenly... Um, our service landscape has, has changed dramatically, and that's happening already. Our payer landscape has changed dramatically. That's happening in other states. Um, sure. What I would say at, at you know a national level, you know certainly the the challenge to uh, recruit and retain um, direct a direct support workforce is really something that nobody's cracked the code on that. I mean that remains okay. I think um, challenge number one for organizations. But what we have to, to recognize, and it's not just the Great Recession, it's not just the, the Great Resignation, sorry. Um, <laughs> you know, the, the, the labor pool that we draw from, I've, I've used this expression before, it, it's really become a labor pond. I mean, it is, it is shrinking dramatically just based on demographic trends. And the competition for that labor pool is increasing dramatically, not only mm-hmm. in our space within IDD services, you know, think of elders uh, who need care in their homes. They are looking for that same uh, profile of a person. Um, think about, you know, outside of our industry. Um, we are all aware of, you know, hospitality and warehouse services, transportation. I mean, that's all effectively drawing from the same labor pool. And so, we're not going to see a dramatic change in this, and there may not be enough money to solve it from that standpoint. I think really um, kind of a, a, a shift in how we provide services, um, how we uh, utilize technology to support people um, is really something that we're seeing, you know, in Illinois and outside of Illinois. But, you know, if we if our if our sole strategy is to think that another 50 cents or dollar an hour is going to right. get us over the, the labor pool hump, um, it's just not going to happen. Um you know, so I, I think that's definitely something we see across the country. I think, you know, use of technology, um, again, there's some interesting, you know, models and interesting um, programs that uh, utilize it more in housing and in what I call remote supports. It's not remote monitoring. We're not kind of putting on cameras on people, um, but really enabling people receiving services to access support when they need it. I kind of use the analogy in the same way, you know, you or I might have a child who's going off to college and they FaceTime to say, hey, mom, how do you make your that recipe that I love? Um, right. That's really enabling people to access technology, you know, in their own time and use it in a way that benefits them. Um, it's interesting you mentioned technology and I, you know, you look at the this being February 15th. It's a labor report came out a couple of weeks ago and labor market is still very strong. Unemployment is still very low. Businesses are still doing well. They're still hiring people, paying people good wages. And so that's, um, you know, the added pressure that you're, you're talking about. And 
every business is forced to, not every, every business, everybody should adapt to the technology piece. I think in our industry, that being the nonprofit landscape, is it's even more paramount to do something like that because the services we're providing are, you know, lack of a better word, almost more important than some other service industries. They're wildly important. We need to get this right. And so we can't fix that labor you know, market, the labor pond, labor pool. We, we can't fix that. We can certainly address it and respond to it. But, you know, I, I love the point about the technology piece. And, I, you know, I've seen some agencies that are really innovative. They mm -hmm. have to be. Think outside the box. Get outside their comfort zone. Maybe invest in it more than they would have in the past. And I think I agree with you completely that if we can start to get some of that right, it'll make the labor issue not go away by any stretch of the imagination, but maybe ease the burden we feel, you know, every day and week and month of staff and staff and staff and pay and pay and pay. Because your point, 50 cents on the dollar is nice. It's meaningful. But is it going to solve that challenge? Yeah. Is it going to cause the shift that we need? It really, you know, it, it's a shift. It's, it, it's something, it's got to be something far more, um, intense, I would say, than some of the, the, the mildly incremental increases that we've seen. Um, sure. You know, another thing that, that um, we at the Institute talk a lot about, I'm, I'm involved at a national level in co-chairing um, a committee for um, Anchor, which is the um, National Association of IDD Providers and State Associations, um, looking at alternate payer models and trends, uh, value-based payment models in IDD services across the country. And yeah, we haven't seen it in my home state of Illinois yet. Some of our neighboring states, uh, indeed, in the Midwest, uh, we do see uh, various models of that. Wisconsin, Indiana, uh, Michigan, Iowa is all in with a managed care LTSS, long-term services and supports yep. model. Um, but it is something, you know, that I try to remind organizations. Um, we 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 think of ourselves as social services. We don't really think of ourselves as healthcare. And indeed, yeah. um, the overwhelming majority of services we provide is paid for by a health insurance program, which is Medicaid. And mm -hmm. when, you, when you kind of step back and take a look at the macro trends in the healthcare industry, not specific to IDD, but hospitals, pharmacies, therapy uh, you know, providers, uh, doctor's practice offices, um, you know, there really is, um, has been for probably over 20 years, but certainly it's accelerated in the past 20 years, a real movement toward consolidation, networking, partnerships, affiliations, um, all kinds of different arrangements that um, are designed to um, uh, improve output, um, yep. reduce costs, um, and create better outcomes for people receiving services. So it's really something in the IDD space that um, we need to be aware of, we need to understand, because when those changes take place in states, you know, they tend to take place at a legislative level, uh, they tend to take place at an executive level, and um, those folks really don't have the understanding of our industry. Uh, the nature of service delivery is not like any other, you know, component of the healthcare industry. And so, you know, while there's a lot of apprehension about changing payer models among providers of services, families of people sure. receiving services, um, you know, what I kind of try to remind people is most people don't think the payer model that's, that's, that's in place for them now is working very well. You know, they, they, so what we, what we find ourselves doing is saying, well, we don't like what we have, but we don't want it to change. Um, and, and what I really <laughs> think we need to focus on 
is we need to be a part of whatever that evolution is going to be because we have the expertise. We know uh, the people we support better than you know anybody at uh, commercial insurance level, at sure. a legislative level. So that's really been a focus for the Institute in terms of um, education, partnership with a lot of others at the national level, and trying to um, make sure that organizations um, you know, focus as much on, on trying to understand what the possibilities are as in trying to stave off that from occurring. Because it, 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 we remain, the IDD space remains the only fee-for-service you know, industry in healthcare. And there's a lot of Medicaid dollars invested in it, and it's just not a model that I see continuing on, say, for the next 20 years at the national Okay. Level. So if you play that out, so who wins in that model? And is this, I know you mentioned consolidation. And so there's some thought that, you know, bigger is certainly better for certain reasons. I'm not advocating, you know, you're not advocating for every agency out there to go merge with somebody right away. Uh, nobody's saying that, right? There's a lot of... Um, a lot of really good things they have with local agencies, you know, community-based setting, and I, and I love all that. And so who wins in that model if that tends to play out that way? You know, I, depending on which path it takes, and there are, you know, um, I wouldn't say a million, there are a lot of different ways this has played out in states. In a couple of our neighboring states, Kansas and Iowa, it's really been a commercial managed care, managed healthcare model that's been superimposed on the IDD industry. And my colleagues there would tell you that that does not work out very well. And winners are not necessarily the people receiving services. Okay. Um, elsewhere, Tennessee, Wisconsin, um, there is uh, Arkansas is another example where there's been much more provider involvement in the development and implementation of different payer models for services. Um, definitely, I think there's a fear among smaller agencies that there wouldn't be a place for them in that kind of a, yeah. of a landscape. And I don't necessarily see that. Indeed, what some of uh, the payers in other states tell us is that some of those niche providers are really um, their most successful networking partners. Because it's almost, it's interesting that, right, it's almost, somebody can pick up the phone and call Kathy Carmody as a CEO of a small organization and say, hey, Kathy, we have this person that we think your services could really well support, and mm -hmm. you know, is this something you can consider? I think another thing that, that alternate payer models can provide is a lot more um, flexibility in uh, payment for supports, the nature of supports. You know, in different models, they are responsible for um, inpatient health care as well as LTSS. So in, in the model that exists in Illinois today, Jason, an organization has no real financial impact if somebody goes into an extended psychiatric hospital stay. They're not paying for it. Interestingly, mm -hmm. in the state of Illinois, neither is IDHS, which pays for LTSS. It's HFS. And there isn't necessarily um, kind of strong care coordination for people outside of managed care, which most people receiving services in, in community settings are outside of managed care because they can opt out if they're a dual eligible. So what, what happens is a person may stay in a inpatient psychiatric setting when if resources could be put in place in their you know, their place of origin, it'd be far less costly and they could be stabilized. There's no real mechanism to do that the way things work in Illinois right now. In other states, indeed, 
the payer has a strong incentive to keep somebody out of an inpatient placement. And as we have heard from both payers and providers in some states, is much more willing to uh, partner with an organization to say, what is it you need? Do you need BCBA on site? Do you need uh, RN psychiatric nursing? Do you need uh, you know daily nurse practitioner involvement? And they control those resources. So now, does it always work that way? No, uh, no but again, that's my my rationale for why providers have to be aware of you know different different models and be a part of conversations when they when they start or lead conversations to assure that that people mm-hmm. receiving services are the real winners in any any payment model that exists. Sure. And now you, you mentioned payment models and, and payer mix, right, and fee for service. And I think most people listening are aware of, you know, the Guidehouse study, right? I think that's probably probably well done if you if you're listening and you're in the IDD space, I'm certain you've heard of it. And so what was it? What did people think it was gonna do? And how has it impacted a lot of those IDD agencies you work so closely with? Sure. So so folks may be aware that Illinois is under a federal consent decree overseeing our IDD community service delivery system. It's called the Legacy Consent Decree. Named after Stanley Ligas, who in fact I knew uh, back in, uh, who was living in an ICFDD setting. But so uh, in about 2017, I believe it was, um, the parties agreed that the state would do a rate study to evaluate whether uh, their existing payment model for community-based services and ICFDD services in the community was adequate. Uh, There was a lot of involvement from community agencies, a lot of input. There was an oversight committee and a a multitude of different committees um, that fed into the oversight committee. Personally, I chaired what's called the staffing committee, which people would probably say is one of the more important, if not the most important committees. Um, Guidehouse then uh, made recommendations to the state in late 2020 for um, uh, different changes that could and should be made to how, how... SILA services, ICFDD services, and what we call community day services are funded. Um, The state uh, adopted the body of recommendations, however, adjusted the timeline for implementation. Um, We have had a steady increase uh, investment um, in um, IDD community services over the past three years since Guidehouse came out. Um, I would be remiss not to say we had a lot of catching up to do, and we still do, mm-hmm. because there was a, a you know a decades-long uh, plateau of investment in community services. Um, most recently, and, and Guidehouse has been responsible for steady wage increases for DSPs. Again, what I would point out and what people know is that the state minimum wage has also increased steadily over the same period of time. And indeed, for example, in January of 2023, state minimum wage increased in Illinois, and the Guidehouse uh, mandated DSP pass-through increased by the same amount. So there's no real net uh-huh. gain. What we're trying to do sure. is build the gap back to the original 150% yep. between minimum wage and uh, DSP wages. Um, what's happened most recently is that um, agencies were given, uh, if you will, draft um, 2023 um, uh, payment projections, those were rescinded very quickly and revised projections were, were just uh, disseminated in the past really 10 days. 
and what agencies are finding is that what we indeed have found system wide mm -hmm. is that while there are increases in some of the uh, payment components of the Silla rate methodology, there's an overall net loss of DSP funded hours. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what one thing I, I kind of say is that nobody ever said that one of the problems in our system is we have too many, <clears throat> too many DSP hours. Um, that, that's never been something that people thought was something we needed to fix. Nobody's volunteering that? Yeah, right. right. We, 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 we fixed a problem that didn't exist. And, mm -hmm. and that, is, that is the net effect right now. Um, we are in constant communication with the state and we are, um, you know, hoping that we are going to see some adjustments to um, what I would call the second round. And in Illinois, organizations know what I'm talking about, the second round of rate information that they received. However, as of today's day, we don't have anything further. Well, that's, I mean, the most obvious statement of this, this podcast is that's going to be a huge challenge. I mean, because the service providers are not going to just not provide services, right? They're going to have to, that's their mission. They're going to do that. And so you talk about a financial strain that's going to hit potentially, you know, maybe there's an amendment, maybe it's, they, they address it, but that's not going to be well received. Oh, no, it's not. No, no, it's not being well, well received. And, and again, you know, to your point, Jason, an organization can't not provide the staff. What is now happening is they're not funded for those staff, so they have to take money that they were supposed to use to increase wages across the board for yeah. frontline uh, staff and now deflect that money to pay unfunded hours. Um, so it, we're still in the we're still in the sort of a little bit of dazed and confused phase with it, and people okay. are doing a lot of calculations. Um, but there's a lot we don't know. We don't know some of the formulas behind some of the the calculations. And and again, we we you know met literally yesterday uh, with uh, IDHS leadership, including the secretary, um, who wanted to hear um, what the impact was and um, wanted to to you know try and and collaborate on what some solutions could be. Okay. Well, that's certainly not a positive going on in Illinois. If we, if you had to identify a trend that you're seeing as a positive, positive momentum, things that are working well, right? So that's, maybe that's an example of maybe what's not working well right now. now maybe it gets addressed, but what do you see what, what's working well? And what, I guess, when you look at your providers that you work with on a daily basis, what are you most proud of as far as the service providers in, in Illinois that you're proud to, you know, hey, you know, I work alongside them. Yeah, no, I mean, we, we definitely have such a strong network of community organizations. And, and, you know, I can speak both to the members of the Institute. I have a, a broader perspective just because I've been here in Illinois uh, for as long as I have. Um, you know, and, and we definitely have a strong uh, network of organizations. I think among organizations, we have strong collaboration. We have strong partnership. You know, my, my members, you know, in, in many cases share footprints, service delivery footprints with, with other fellow members. And, you know, their, their interest is in assuring that, that everybody is getting the best services that they can. So it's, um, I, I think that that feature of our system um, is a really important quality. And I think mm -hmm. that will continue. And, you know, Jason, I think that's one of the things to, to part of our earlier conversation about, you know, how might a small organization sustain themselves you know, I, I, I think there's different models of partnership, and, and I'm a big proponent of the affiliation model, which gives organizations their sort of forward-facing identity 
and maybe some of the things that they are uh, spending a lot of time doing that weren't really what they came into the industry to do, such as uh, trying to figure out rate sheets and mm-hmm. fleet management and property management. Some of those things, um, you sure. know, are being consolidated on the back end, which I, again, is, is that that personally is my preferred model of partnership because, you know, I do think that having um, options, different different organizations that people can can choose services from um, is important. I, I think also, you know, the, the involvement um, of the federal court and our legacy monitor is a very strong asset here in Illinois, um, who, again, has, you know, certainly only the best interest of people receiving services in mind as um, she is working toward, um, you know, fulfilling her role and making sure that the system is moving in that direction. Okay. Well, that is positive. And so you mentioned a couple, th- three words. I mentioned partnership, collaboration, and membership. And so you have a summit coming up this year, right? So before we hop off, I want to give you the floor. You already have the floor, so you yeah. can keep the floor to talk about, you know, your, your summit coming up at the, at the later on in the year, you know, who should attend and what could people that attend, you know, relatively, what could they expect? Right. What, could they, what, could they, what could they learn? Who are they going to meet? So, yes, we do. We, we uh, sort of resurrected that model um, of gathering people, um, uh, which we had done pre-COVID. Um, what I will say is our summits are, are not a traditional um, IDD industry conference. Um, it really is a C-suite event. Um, it is not something that clinical staff or frontline staff... Um, it's and not that that is not urgent that they get information mm-hmm. as well, but we really are marketed towards um, towards that C-suite um, agency leadership. Um, interest, you know, one of the things I think is interesting is that uh, we don't have breakout sessions. We you just every session is a keynote session. Um, our speakers all come from outside of Illinois, with with small exceptions. I'll you know give some examples of names people might recognize. Um, our 2022 event opened up with Serena Lowe. And most people, regardless of whether you're from Illinois or not, will know Serena's name because she essentially used to be the chief policymaker at the federal level and effectively has her DNA all over the HCBS settings rule. Um, about, about two years ago, she left uh, uh, ACL, the Administration on Community Living, and crossed over to a managed care company, CareSource. And so that is really a fascinating transition that I wanted people to be able to hear about and learn from. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, Serena Lowe, you know, kicked off our, our session. We had a great moderated session with uh, three out-of-state organizations that indeed have different models of um, M&A activity. I call it M-A-N-A, merger acquisition and, and, and affiliation. We had uh, Linda Timmons, who's the CEO of Mosaic. We had um, Bob Longo, who is in the private equity space. And we had a uh, provider from Iowa who indeed has, uh, you know, built a network of organizations from what used to be under 5 million to now 60 million. So for people to hear those stories and learn, um, it really brings some different um, information and intel to CEOs than, um, you know, what they would probably get at a, a... more traditional industry conference. So um, my only concern is, uh, you know, how, how are we going to top our, our November 2022 event? Because it really was just, uh, was just 
you know, got great feedback and, and had nearly 200 CEOs, I think 11 states represented. Um, so it, and it's not Illinois centric, you know, it's, it, it, we had mm-hmm. folks coming in from literally East coast, California, Midwest. Um, it's a very, um, you know, again, the, the topics that we talk about, um, are really, um, topics that are impacting anybody providing IDD services. They're not specific to, to our industry here in Illinois. Mm-hmm. Sure. Well, well, I love it. And, you know, okay, at the end, on behalf of, uh, people all over Illinois who have a tie to the IDD world in whatever shape or form. They're, uh, they're you know, family, family members getting services. They're, they're a DSP. They're a vendor working with the, with the industry. I want to say thank you for your leadership. Thank you for your stewardship. Um, every time I, I speak with you, I learn more than I ever could imagine. So I want to say thank you for your friendship and, and joining us here on the podcast today. Absolutely. Looking, you know, looking forward to future conversations and, you know, folks who, who view it, know where to reach me, go to instituteonline.org or Kathy at instituteonline.org in, uh, in the email. And, uh, you know, always happy to talk to organizations here and abroad. Um, just that's part of what we do. Well, thanks so much, Kathy. So well, that'll wrap it up for today. So until next time, on behalf of the Horton Group, I'm Jason Helford saying thank you for listening to the one thing podcast.